This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Nomis and Science Young Explorer Award. Are you doing excellent research that deserves recognition? The Nomis and Science Young Explorer Award recognizes bold young researchers who ask fundamental questions at the intersection of the life and social sciences. Researchers who take risks to address relevant and exciting questions with creative approaches, regardless of the research outcome. Submissions are due May 15th. Visit science.org slash nomis, that's N-O-M-I-S, to apply today. Welcome to the Science Podcast for November 27, 2015. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, Suzanne Bard interviews Joshua Blumenstock about mobile phone usage and poverty prediction in Rwanda. And David Grimm is here with stories on gene drives, helpful parasites, and electric roses. Support for the Science Podcast is provided by AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science. Now we have David Grimm, editor for our daily news site. He's here to talk about some recent online stories. I'm Sarah Crespi. First up, we have a story on a malaria eradication technique that just might have to wait. Through collaboration and some fancy genetic editing techniques, researchers have engineered a mosquito that can't get malaria. If these bugs were introduced into the wild, their offspring would preferentially inherit these anti-malaria genes. But there's a big but here. The researchers used the controversial gene drive system to make this happen. Why is this approach controversial? Well, we should talk a little bit about how this approach works first. This is a relatively new method. And, you know, one of the challenges of getting genes into populations is you can infect an individual with a gene or find a way to get a new gene into an individual. But getting that gene to persist in a population is very difficult because that individual's offspring, only half of the offspring may have the gene or a quarter of the offspring may have that gene. And then of those offspring, maybe a 16th or less will have the gene. And so as, and as you can see, as you go on, that gene gets more and more diluted in the population until it essentially disappears. What gene drive does is it basically, it's a molecular mechanism that causes the gene to persist in a population. And it does that by causing the gene to be preferentially inherited so that most offspring offspring are going to get this gene, most of their offspring are going to get this gene, and therefore it sticks around and and even grows to prominence in the population. But getting back to your point, I mean, that's obviously could be a big problem because what if the gene starts to do things that you don't want it to do? What if a mutation causes the gene to do things you don't want it to do? Or what if the consequences of what you wanted it to do are outweighed by some potentially negative side effects? And so if it's just a couple individuals, it's you know, not so hard maybe to get those individuals out of the population. But if you're starting talking about an entire population starting to have a gene, what do you do then? And this is all really abstract. But in the specific case we're talking about, they worked with mosquitoes and they had to have a few breakthrough moments in order to get these mosquitoes to resist malaria. Can you talk about that? Well, one of the things they were really trying to do was to get mouse genes into these mosquitoes 
that would essentially make the mosquitoes immune to malaria because that's what these genes do in mice. And there had actually been some work a couple years ago where the researchers had actually been able to get these genes into mosquitoes and the mosquitoes were indeed resistant to malaria. So that was the first big hurdle. And the second big hurdle was, okay, now that we're able to do this, can we hitchhike this on to this gene drive technology and find a way to spread these genes throughout a mosquito population. And that's what they did in this new study. What would be the consequences if these mosquitoes were released to malaria, to the population? What do the researchers think would happen? Well, what the researchers think is if they released a few genetically modified individuals, these individuals would mate with what are called wild-type individuals. These are individuals in the wild. And the offspring of these matings would carry these uh, modified genes, these offspring uh, would spread it to their offspring and so on and so on, you would get an entire population of mosquitoes eventually that were resistant to malaria. And that means that they would not be able to transmit the disease to humans. What the scientists were able to show was that the technology was so efficient that 99% of a modified mosquito's offspring had the gene, had the modified gene. And that because of this, after a mere 10 generations, it's possible that this gene could completely infiltrate a population of mosquitoes. Now, when I hear about gene drives, maybe not everyone, but when I hear about it, it seems to be that the poor mosquito is always the target. How can we fix these crazy bugs that are giving us diseases and biting us? What else is on the docket for genetic manipulation in the wild? So one idea is tackling Lyme disease, and mice are part of the life cycle of Lyme disease. So if you can target eradicating Lyme disease in mice or potentially give them a gene that would prevent mice from being part of the cycle, you could disrupt the entire cycle. The problem is it's one thing to do this in insects. It's a whole other thing to do it in mammals. And at least current research has shown that it's a pretty complicated hurdle to overcome. I said this was a controversial idea. Is there any regulation in place? What's being done to make sure that it's done correctly? Well, this is obviously becoming a hot topic right now. And right now, researchers are actually sort of scrambling to come up with guidelines that would guide researchers on when to use and maybe when not to use this technology. Next up, we have a story on what a parasitic worm can do for you. A lot of people jokingly during pregnancy call their fetus a parasite. I know I did. (laughs) But there are actual serious similarities, right? Right. When actually there actually is a medical term. I don't know if it's a medical term, but I have heard some scientists and doctors refer to fetuses as the perfect parasite because Ah. they sort of, you know, for all intents and purposes, feed off their mother. It's not just getting food, but I mean, they, they really take a lot of resources away from their host, which just in this case happens to be mom. But actual parasites are actually very similar, especially when we talk about parasites like worms. There are roundworms, for example, that can be up to 14 inches long, at least when we're talking about Ascaris lumbricoides. This is a roundworm that resides in the small intestine and actually eats some of the host's food while the host is eating, which is kind of gross. There's also vampire worms. They're also called hookworms. These uh, species puncture the lining of the intestine and actually feed off their host's blood. But what both these have in common with babies is that they both have to, in order to prevent the human body from rejecting them, they have to find a way to tamp down their host's immune system. And we're talking about having an intestinal worm and how it's like being pregnant because it turns out that certain worms can facilitate fertility. How was this study done, Dave? (laughs) 
Well, the researchers looked at people known as the Simane who live in the Amazon rainforest of Bolivia. There's about 16,000 of these people, and they have a fairly primitive lifestyle. They survive mainly by hunting, fishing, and raising crops. But what's significant about them for this study is they're also host to a lot of intestinal worms. About 15 to 20 percent of them harbor Ascaris, which is the roundworm, and about half of them carry hookworms. These are the worms that suck on blood. And do these worms affect fecundity? They do in different ways. So the hookworms, the ones that feast on blood, were bad for fertility. Women that had hookworms tended to give birth later and had a had have a longer time between pregnancies. And the overall result of that was about three fewer children they had during their lifetime. And that seems like a lot fewer to have. It turns out these women give birth to an average of nine kids. And what about the other side, the roundworm? So the roundworm actually had the opposite effect. It shortened the time between pregnancies and reduced the age at which women first gave birth for a net effect of an extra two babies per lifetime. Is this the only situation in which parasites seem to be doing people a favor? Well, we know there are some examples of parasites reducing inflammation, and that would be a good thing if you have things like allergies, asthma, things like that, for similar reasons, because if our immune system is overactive and we put something in our body that's going to tamp down our immune system, that might be good. And that's one of the potential applications of this work, because if scientists can figure out what it is exactly about these worms that are having this effect... First of all, there's potential for fertility treatments, although I'm not sure anybody wants to get infested with worms just to improve their fertility. But if scientists could isolate maybe what compounds these worms are excreting, they could potentially turn that into drugs or therapies that would improve fertility or, you know, again, treat things like asthma and allergy. Lastly, we have a story on electric flowers. This is really a neat story about growing electronics inside of plants. Why might this be a good idea, Dave? Well, you can imagine some potential applications. First of all, what if you wanted to eavesdrop on your crops? For example, what if you wanted to know when your crops were about to blossom, when they're going to be ready to harvest? What if a big storm was coming and you wanted to manipulate your crops, maybe push a button that would cause them all to sort of go into a bit of a hibernation mode so they wouldn't be impacted as much by the weather? Or what if we want to harness the energy of photosynthesis. I mean, plants are great at taking light from the sun and turning it into energy. What if we were somehow able to put a circuit into a plant that would enable us to draw some of that energy out ourselves? So the very beginning of this process is being worked out right now, and they used organic electronics to kind of give a proof of principle. How did they get these things to assemble inside a rose? Well, what they want to do is try to get these little microcomponents into a plant's xylem or rose's xylem. And xylem is this tube-like channel that transports water up the plant's stem to the leaf. So you can imagine if you could get something into that channel, you'd have something that would innervate the entire plant. The problem is that if you put compounds, even dissolvable compounds, into water, say, and try to have a plant suck it up through its xylem, those pretty easily get stuck, clog up the whole machinery, and then you don't have a very good circuit. So what the researchers did in this new study is they worked on a very tiny organic building block. It's called P-E-D-O-T slash S colon H. But basically what these are, these sh- they're short repeating chains of a conductive organic molecule with short arms coming off each link of the chain. And basically what happens is as these 
small molecules are sucked up into the xylem of plants, these individual molecules use these arms and begin hooking up into each other. And they basically form this continuous long strand, almost like a molecular wire that goes from one end of the xylem to the other. And once the wires are there, what happens next? Then the researchers can connect probes on each side of those wires. And basically what they've got is a circuit that could potentially conduct electricity. Um, And in fact, in this case, what they were able to do was they created an array of pixels within the plant by applying different voltages that could create colors. And actually, they were able to create a bit of a living display inside of the rows. Even if we never harness the power of sun through plants, we can at least have nicer roses. That's right. Okay, what else is on the site this week? Well, Sarah, we've got a story timed for Thanksgiving holiday in the United States about a time in the distant past when we used to worship turkeys instead of serving them for dinner. (laughs) Also, we have just announced the winner of our annual Dance Your PhD contest. This is where we ask scientists to interpret their PhD in dance forms. We had dozens of very cool submissions this year, and we've just picked our favorite plus some finalists in three other categories. So be sure to check that out. For Science Insider, our policy blog, we've got a story about what academics can contribute to understanding the terrorist attacks in Paris last week. Also a story about China cracking down on fraud in scientific publishing. So be sure to check out all these stories on the site. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Sarah. David Grimm is the editor for our online daily news site. I'm Sarah Crespi. You can check out the latest news and the policy blog, Science Insider, at news.sciencemag.org. Companies collect large amounts of data on the web surfing habits of Internet users in order to target ads and tailor their products. But big data can also be used to research social demographics like the unemployment rate. Now, information scientists think mobile phones could be a treasure trove of accurate and up-to-date demographic data because of their sheer popularity. Just about everyone has one nowadays. Joshua Blumenstock discusses how cell phone usage patterns predict poverty and wealth in Rwanda in this week's issue of Science. I spoke with him via a remote cell phone connection while he was in the field. I'm Suzanne Bard. How is demographic data traditionally sourced, both in industrialized and developing countries, Joshua? Traditionally, demographic information is captured through surveys, and this can take many forms from face-to-face, long-form interviews, short, structured interviews over the phone, to internet-based surveys or even opinion polls. In developing countries, the options are much more limited, and researchers and policymakers typically rely on household surveys, which are time-consuming and expensive. You send enumerators to households all over the country, and they spend, you know, an hour or two going through a long questionnaire. So are those the main drawbacks, that they're time-consuming and expensive? So the fact that they take a lot of time and that they cost a lot of money is certainly a major concern, particularly in developing countries and even more so in fragile and conflict-affected states. It can simply be impossible to collect data from certain areas or prohibitively expensive. I do work in Afghanistan and Pakistan, and there are regions of the country where it's just not safe to send people to collect data, and that means that the data that researchers and policymakers have is often very unreliable. Another issue is just the lack of timeliness or the fact that the data that does exist can be extremely out of date. 
there are a couple of well-cited examples in the press. For instance, Angola, the two successive rounds of the Angolan census were in 1970 and 2014. And so, you know, in those 44 years, a lot happened in the country, including a civil war. And so the size of the population grew by, I don't know, 400, 500 percent, um, and the demographic of the country entirely shifted. So if you imagine making policy decisions based on data that's 40 years out of date, that can lead to poor decisions. I can see how that would be a major problem. So let's talk about cell phones and the advantages of cell phones. First of all, a lot of us in the developed world complain about the high cost of our cell phone bills. So it might surprise some of us just how ubiquitous they are in the developing world. Why turn to cell phone usage to source big data in order to study socioeconomic status? So in developed countries, you know, where the Internet is very ubiquitous and you have all sources of digitally collected data, there are lots of interesting methods for using these sources of data to do demographic inference and to measure populations. In developing countries, a lot of those sources of data just don't exist. And the one exception really is the mobile phone, which has taken off all over the developing world. Rates of adoption range from 40% to near 100% in some of even the poorest countries, partly because the rates of usage are so low and devices are cheap. Calls are billed per second and it's pay-as-you-go. It's not like what we have in the United States where you get a 50 or $100 phone bill a month. You can get by with 50 cents or a dollar a month and send several SMSs and make several phone calls in developing countries. And so what this means is that certainly not a representative, but a very large population is generating anonymous passive data every day, terabytes of data. And what we do in this project is try and use that data to understand the structure of the population. All right. So tell me about your study in Rwanda. What exactly did you measure and analyze via individuals' cell phone usage data? And how did you infer their socioeconomic status from that? So the paper does two things. The first one is that given anonymized data on how an individual is using his or her phone, we can fairly accurately infer that person's socioeconomic status, their wealth or their poverty. Second result is that when you take millions of these predicted measures at the individual level of wealth and poverty, they can be aggregated into national statistics that have lots of applications that are relevant to humanitarian aid and policymaking. So the approach we took was to start with a small sample of people, of ordinary Rwandan citizens, and through phone surveys, we collected information, very basic, non-personally identifiable information, but information that allowed us to develop a measure of how wealthy each of these people were. There were 856 people in total. So for each of these 856 people, we know on a scale whether they're at the top end of the income distribution or the bottom end. And then with their permission, we access an anonymized version of their call records. So this is not the contents of their calls or the text that's in their SMSs. It's just the metadata. So it's information on the proximate timing and location of each of the calls or SMSs that they've made over the past year. So what we then do is we match this anonymized data on phone use to this measure for each of the 856 people of wealth or poverty. And we use sort of sophisticated statistical and computational machinery 
to understand what the relationships are between these two quantities. So in other words, what aspects of phone use tend to indicate that someone is wealthy or poor? And, you know, there are a lot of intuitive examples that come to mind. For instance, people that tend to make calls in a regular pattern between 9 a.m. and 5 p.m. tend to be working in certain occupations and tend to be wealthier. Or people that tend to make a lot more calls than they receive. Because remember, in Rwanda, you only pay to make a phone call. You don't pay to receive a phone call. So the people that are making the calls tend to be a little wealthier, and the people that are receiving the calls tend to be poorer. Similarly, if you look at the values of airtime that they're putting onto their phone, people that buy large quantities, like $10 at a time, tend to be wealthier than people who buy airtime in much smaller quantities, like 50 cents or a dollar at a time. So what all this says is that buried in these data on just the patterns of cell phone use is a very rich signal that allows us to detect whether or not someone is wealthy or poor. So from these 856 people, we're able to discover what that relationship is between phone use and wealth. And then what we do is we take that information, that relationship that we discover, and we use it to infer for the entire phone-owning population of Rwanda a predicted measure of poverty, a predicted measure of wealth. And so for millions of people, we now have basically our best guess of whether each of those people is where they fall on the income scale. And with that, we can sort of see in beautiful detail at high resolution and in very high temporal granularity what the distribution of wealth and poverty looks like for the entire country. And there's no reason to believe these estimates. They're based on our predictions, which are based on patterns of phone use of several million Rwandans. But what we can do is we can then take those predictions and compare it to what the national government estimates using those traditional surveys that we talked about at the beginning. So using surveys that cost millions of dollars where they sent out small armies of data collectors across the country, similar to a census that we would have in the United States, to figure out what the true distribution of wealth is, where we compare that true distribution of wealth to what we predict based just on the phone records and the interviews that we did with 856 individuals. And what we find in the paper is that the predictions are very, very accurate. The correlation is greater than 90% between estimates based purely on phone data and estimates based on gold standard, large-scale, nationally representative household surveys. So this is really interesting, but Rwanda is one country. Is there reason to believe that you could extend this sort of technique to other countries and predict socioeconomic status from their cell phone data as well? Yeah, absolutely. And right now with a team of collaborators, I'm doing follow-up work to figure out exactly how well those extensions would work. But intuitively, in every country, we hypothesize that there's a relationship between how people use their phone and how wealthy they are. Now, the exact nature of that relationship is going to change from one country to another, and it might even change from one year to the next within a country. But fundamentally, we think that there are these relationships that exist and these patterns that we can find that say, you know, people who use their phone in a certain way in country X tend to be wealthier than people who use it in a different way. And it'll be really interesting to figure out how stable those patterns are from one country to another or from one time period to another, or even within a country from one region to another. Another thing to keep in mind is that while the study we've done illustrates this relationship between anonymized phone data and wealth, 
you know, there's reason to think that this might be much more general. There's nothing special about phone data. It's very useful in developing countries because, as I mentioned, phones are fairly ubiquitous. But you could imagine doing something similar with a different data stream, be it Twitter data or Facebook data or other passively collected digital data. And it might also work with other things that you care about aside from poverty and wealth. Again, we focus on using phone data to predict wealth, but you could imagine using phone data to predict happiness or sadness, or you could imagine using Twitter data to predict happiness or sadness. And this is an area where you see a lot of research right now about how you can infer these vital national statistics from existing data without potentially spending millions of dollars going out and collecting it in the traditional ways. Joshua, what are some other practical applications of this type of research? I think there are a lot of promising applications, and I should say up front that these are fairly speculative. I don't think that the application for this is to replace traditional methods of data collection. I think there's a lot of really important uses for traditional data. I think this just provides a different alternative. It provides a different perspective, and it has certain advantages that traditional methods don't. So I think the first application is the one that we demonstrate most conclusively in the paper, which is that it provides an option for collecting very cost-effective interim national statistics. So, you know, all told, we spent less than $15,000 collecting the survey data that was necessary to develop these estimates of the wealth of Rwanda. The most common alternative is to do a nationally representative household survey, which costs several million dollars. And so for purely practical reasons, that can't be done year in, year out. So there's an option to say, well, maybe we could do quick and dirty versions using the method that we develop, do it every year or every six months, just to update the estimates of what the status of the country looks like. Another application is to think about doing this at extremely fine spatial granularity. So I think the thought experiment here is a lot of humanitarian aid is targeted fairly coarsely, right, at the village level or at the region level. This potentially opens up possibilities to think about dispersing humanitarian aid or social welfare in a much more potentially accurate manner at the individual or household level. I guess the thought experiment here is what if we could use all these scientific methods to target poverty in the same way that Amazon or Bing is using machine learning to target advertisements, right? What they're doing is they're looking at your web history, your browsing information, and they use it to figure out what advertisement you're likely to click on or what demographic group you're likely to be in. And so what this is saying is, well, you could also use these same methods to think about how to get social welfare to the people that need it most. The third application I'll mention is to use these methods to develop much more real-time measures of poverty and wealth and how the situation of a country is changing from one moment to the next, right? Instead of waiting years or, in the case of Angola, 34 years to update your measures, you know, the phone data is updated literally every minute, every hour, every day. And so with more careful testing, you could imagine having a dynamic understanding of what the distribution of wealth and poverty looks like from one moment to the next. We've seen in other research that patterns of phone use change instantly after things happen in a country. And if you could use those changes to understand who was affected by good things and bad things, that really opens up new directions for thinking about how to do effective policy making. And I imagine we might have a few listeners out there who would say, well, my cell phone knows too much about me already. What would you say to that, Joshua? No, I think, that, I think that's a 
very legitimate concern. And here in the U.S., it's sort of too late, right? Like the phone company has your social security number and your credit card number, and based on that, they can pull up all sorts of information. I think the application here is to say, well, is there a way that all of that demographic targeting could be used in a way that actually helps society in ways that are relevant to people in places where having more accurate, more reliable information on their needs and desires would actually provide new mechanisms for people that are trying to solve social problems. Thanks so much for speaking with me, Joshua. Yeah, it was a pleasure. Thanks, Suzanne. Joshua Blumenstock and his colleagues write about predicting wealth and poverty from cell phone metadata. This Week in Science. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and many other places, or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science. But did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.